0: Well, good morning, and God is good. He knew uh, long ahead of time that the Astros were going to keep us up till midnight, and so uh, he sent us the Baylor Men's Choir to fill us with energy and spirit and make sure nobody's falling asleep today, at least not during that part, and uh, it's good to see y'all this morning. It's good to be in God's house. Y'all turn with me to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews uh, chapter... 3, Hebrews chapter 3, we're also going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 10, so if you've got a lot of dexterity, you'll be able to look at both passages, but we'll start in Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 14, and then we'll get into chapter 10. So uh, we're going to talk about encouragement. We're in a series about the one another's in Scripture 59 times in the New Testament, that God's Word said we are, we are to treat one another in a certain way because God cares about how His children get along with one another. And so today we're looking at encourage one another. And you may think that doesn't sound very exciting, but that's because we misunderstand what encouragement is. We think of encouragement in terms of random compliments we give each other. So, you guys should sure look good in those tuxedos. That's encouragement, right? No, actually, encouragement is something much more. Yeah, the Greek word encourage, to encourage, literally means to walk alongside or to come alongside someone. So in, my, in the article in our At First Guide this morning, I tell this story. I'm going to tell it again verbally. When I was in high school, there was a girl a couple years older than me who was an outstanding long-distance runner. And she won every race, mile to mile. Uh, and we would, hear, we would read in the paper, we'd hear the stories of the new records she was setting And when we had our meet on campus, the Oakham High School meet, a lot of us came out to watch her run because we wanted to see it for ourselves because we'd heard about how she would lap the entire field and that sort of thing. Uh, So that night she ran an outstanding race. She may have even set a record, I'm not sure. But she was disqualified. Even though she won, she was disqualified. Her her score, her time was tossed out because one of the guys on the track team, a, a sophomore, Was so excited and wanted her to do well so badly, he jogged alongside her on the infield the whole way around, calling out encouragement to her, telling her, come on, you can do it, pick it up. And the judges said, nobody else had that. That gives her a a competitive advantage. Nobody else had that kind of encouragement. And so she's disqualified. That is the power of encouragement. It can help you do better. It can help you last longer. It can help you stick with it, even when it's hard. It can keep you from stumbling. It can make you greater than you ever could be. And so we are called to encourage one another. Now, the context of the book of Hebrews is this. By the way, here's your little Bible trivia fact for the day. Hebrews is the only book of the New Testament. We have no real solid clue on who actually wrote it. We're sure it was an apostle because otherwise the early church wouldn't have accepted it but we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. What we do know is the context in which it was written. It's written to Jewish Christians in the first century. Jewish Christians who were starting to get discouraged, starting to backslide, you might say, starting to say, well, maybe I'm not going to pursue Christ with quite the same intensity as I have before, because it's hard. I'm being persecuted. I'm being ridiculed. I'm being ostracized. Maybe I need to dial this down a little bit. Maybe I even need to fit back in with my old friends. So life won't be quite so tough. And the context that the author writes in here is, he's trying to remind them of something they all remembered. In chapter 3, he's actually quoting Psalm 95, which if you're Jewish, you grow up in a Jewish home, you grow up singing the songs, the Psalms in those days. Psalm 95 was about a specific story that happened to the Israelites over a thousand years before. And every one of them would have known this story. So in the story that's found in the book of Numbers, the, the people of Israel had been traveling for weeks. This was the generation that had been freed during the time of the Exodus. They, they grew up as slaves. They'd seen the miracles of God. They'd seen the plagues upon Egypt. They'd seen the waters part before them at the Red Sea and then walk across on dry ground. They'd seen the presence of God manifested on top of Mount Sinai. Thunder and lightning and earthquake and a loud trumpet blast. And then Moses comes down with the words of the covenant on, on two stone tablets. They'd eaten bread from heaven every morning. They'd they'd drank water from a a rock. They'd followed a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If anybody anybody ever knew that God was real and that God is on our side, this generation did. And yet, they show up at a place called Kadesh Barnea, which is right across the Jordan River from Israel, from the Promised Land. And they'd been told all along, I've got this land for you to live in where there's cities you'll get to live in that you don't build. There's there's farms that you didn't plant, and you'll get to harvest their crops. There's wine you'll get to drink, and you didn't plant those vineyards. And all you have to do is cross this river and follow my instruction, and the people of the land will flee before you. And so they get to Kadesh Barnea, and they falter. Because the people who've gone to spy out the land come back, and they say, yeah, it's everything God said it was. I mean, check this out. We brought back some fruit. Look at this, Look at this cluster of grapes. It takes two of us to carry this but the problem is the people of the land are huge they're fierce and they're warlike and we're like grasshoppers next to them they're going to chew us up and spit us out we've got no chance and this little virus of fear and doubt began to spread among the people of God people who had seen over and over again that God is bigger that God is stronger that God is on their side they began to get discouraged And two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, step up and they say, no, don't listen to that. It's okay. We can do this. But it was too late. The epidemic had started. And that generation turned back and they refused to cross. And a whole generation of people, thousands upon thousands of young, able-bodied human beings died in the desert. They traded abundance for poverty. They traded milk and honey for wandering in the wilderness. Dropping dead one after the other until an entire generation was gone. And so the author of Hebrews is looking at them, and he's looking at us, he's saying don't make the same mistake. Christ has died for you, not just so you can go to heaven when you die, Christ has died for you so you can experience eternal, abundant life now. Joy and peace and purpose, don't miss it, don't waste what you've been given. So in that context, we read chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Stay with it. He says, exhort one another. That word exhort, we don't use it a lot today, means basically the same thing as encourage. Stick with it. Don't give up. Hold on to the end. You'll be glad you did. Then in chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. It is our job to encourage one another. We need that. Because every one of us is going to face a time, if we haven't already, some of you may be in that time right now, we're all going to face a time where we start to say, is it really worth it? Maybe I'm just not cut out for this Christian life. Maybe the best I can hope for is I'm the floor sweeper in the kingdom of God. Maybe I'm just not that good. And we need somebody to come alongside and say, you can do this. Christ died for you for a reason you matter. So how do we do that? How do we become the encouraging people that all of us need? There's three things I want to show you from these two passages. Number one, it takes presence. You have to be physically present in the life of someone to truly, consistently encourage them. I know, I know these things are, are magnificent. I mean, isn't it great that I can carry this in my pocket, whip it out and call somebody or text somebody or communicate with somebody who's all the way across the world. I can do anything with this. But you know what I can't do with this? I can't I can't have a real relationship with someone. And that's why even if the author of Hebrews was alive today, he would still say like it says in 10:25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Because even in the first century there were people who were saying, do I really need to go to church? I mean, when I go to church, people see me go into that house. They know that's where the Christ followers meet, and, and they make fun of me, and it makes my life difficult. Besides, I've got things to do. Remember, in those days, they didn't get Sundays off. They had to go after work or before work. It was, this was hard. Isn't it enough that I know Jesus personally? Isn't it enough that I have the Holy Spirit in my heart? Isn't it enough that I can pray anytime I want? Do I really have to go to a gathering of Christians? And the author of Hebrews says, yes, you do. You absolutely do. Because people need to see you and you need to see God's people. And we need one another. And that, by the way, that doesn't happen in this room. Y'all realize that, right? A little bit. You may get a little bit of it. But y'all are mostly an audience in this room. It's when you get together in those small groups that we call life groups. It's when you, when you work together, when you serve together, when you sing together in the choir, when you actually rub shoulders together when you have presence in one another's lives. There was a lady in one of the churches I pastored named Mrs. Sutton. Mrs. Sutton was an elderly lady when I knew her, but she had gotten married when she was 25 to a man who was 50. And you think, oh, my gosh, that's not going to work. They were married 50 years till he was 100 years old. And I never met Mr. Sutton. He had passed away by the time I came along, but she said nothing but reverential things about him except one thing. She said when he got into his late 90s, he got to the point where he didn't want to go to church anymore. And she was a little distraught about this because he'd always been the guy who was a leader in the church and he was there every Sunday and he was, everybody looked up to him. But now he just didn't want to go and he gave her trouble every Sunday when she was trying to get him ready. And finally she said, what is the matter with you? You've always been in church. You've always been eager to worship the Lord. Why are you being such a, a little t- Toddler now, and he said, "Well, I, I can't really see, so I don't really know who's around me. I can barely hear. I'm getting nothing out of the sermon. I'm getting nothing out of the music. There's no real reason for me to be there. And I'm sure many of you have said that before. I'm just not getting enough out of this." He said, "Give me one good reason why I should keep going." And she said, "I'll give you one because you're an inspiration to others." Because they look at you every Sunday and they say, Man, old Mr. Sutton gets up and he's 95, 96 years old, and I know he's hurting and I know it's hard, but he gets himself to church every Sunday. So what's my excuse? And she said, once he said that to once she said that to him, he never again complained about going to church. Because then he realized, as we all need to remember that what we do for the Lord, including our presence here, is not just for us. Well, I don't get anything out of the service. Well, your presence here means something. Well, I'm not very good at singing. Well, we can all tell that, but sing anyway. (laughs) I had a worship minister friend of mine. He said, if you can't sing well, at least sing loud. (laughs) Because it inspires others to sing. If for nothing else, then to drown you out, right? (laughs) When you invite someone. When you show compassion to someone who's hurting, when, you, when you're in life group and you say, hey, everybody, I'm struggling. Let me tell you what I'm struggling with. There's a temptation that's, that's just killing me. There's a... There's a trial that's going on in my life and the devil's getting the best of me. When you do that, you make it a safe place for everybody to realize, I don't have to pretend to be righteous. I can be myself. I can share what I'm struggling with. And we become a community that lifts one another up and bears one another's burdens. You inspire others. Your presence is important. But when you're not here, we miss that. We miss that voice, that experience that you bring. But it isn't just Sunday mornings, because he goes on in chapter 3, or he said in chapter 3, verse 13, exhort one another every day. We're not just supposed to wait until Sunday to encourage each other. It's every day. It's our presence with one another every day. And, and so it, it reminds me of the story of the theology professor whose wife had passed away, and he was absolutely bereft. And a couple of his colleagues came to visit him a couple of weeks after the funeral, which is the best time to visit because the, the grieving person feels like everybody else has moved on. And these two come to his house and they say, how are you doing? And He said, I'll be honest with you. I'm just about ready to quit. I, I'm ready to give my resignation because I feel like a hypocrite when I get up there and I talk about God and I talk about all these theological truths. And the truth is, I don't even pray anymore because I'm so mad at God. I just can't bring myself to, to speak his name in prayer. And they said don't quit. Listen, you're good at this. This is what God called you to do. You know what you're saying is true. Keep teaching. You're making a difference and we'll carry you. We'll we'll pray double to make up for your lack of prayer. We'll carry you as long as it takes. And so they did every day. They got up and they prayed double just for their friend. They made sure they're carrying his burden. And after months passed, he came to them and he said, Thanks for carrying me this far, guys. I can take it from here. Because that's what it means to be present in someone's life. You know what's going on with them. You're able to speak the words they need to hear. It takes presence. It also takes urgency. Chapter 3, verse 13 says, We should exhort one another while it is still called today. Which is a creative way of saying, don't let the sun go down if you know there's someone who needs your help. You know there's somebody who's struggling and you think, well, I should send him a letter or I should drop by and visit her or I should give her a call or, hey, I should probably take him out to lunch. Do it now. Don't say, well, I'm really busy now because now's the time. In fact, he goes on uh, in chapter 10, verse 25 and says, encouraging one one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. What day is he talking about? In my Bible, it's capitalized because it's talking about judgment day. And you might say, Well, I thought we were talking about encouragement. That's kind of happy and cheerful. Why is he going to bring Judgment Day into the discussion? Because all of us have to stand before God someday, every single one of us. Listen, if you've been sleeping up till now, if you faded out and you're not hearing anything else, hear this. You are going to stand before God in judgment someday. And if you're in Christ, you don't have to worry about the verdict of that judgment. You don't have to worry about your eternal destiny because Jesus has already opened the door for you to spend eternity with Him. Hallelujah. Praise God. But you still have to stand before God. And what does that mean? Here's what I think it means based on the parables Jesus talked about in talking about the end times and judgment. And we're going to talk about this more next Sunday. I think it means we stand before God and we say, okay, Lord, here's what you gave me. And here's what I did with it. Here's the wealth you gave me. Here's the resources you gave me. Here's the talents you gave me. Here's the relationships I had an opportunity to make a difference in for you. And here's what I did. And, And personally, I don't want to stand before God someday and say... You know, Lord, I was doing my best to lead a church. I had meetings to attend. I had sermons to write. And so I didn't have time to call up Joe and and ask him how he was doing. I didn't have time to walk next door and check on my neighbor when they lost a loved one. I I just didn't have time for that. And I'd love to have done that. But, you know, I had a church to lead. That's not going to fly. And I know you don't want to say that to the Lord either. And by the way, I'm sure there are some of you here today who would say, well, I've got a better excuse than that. I just... God just didn't wire me to be an encouraging person. I'm more the kind of person. My gift, my talent is I kick people in the rear. I don't slap them. I don't pat them on the back. You know that's just my my style. I'm more sarcastic. I'm more hard, and and you know that's who I am. And I'm glad you're that way, so I can be very blunt with you. Get over yourself, knucklehead. (laughs) I mean, you're not dead, so you should grow. So if you're not doing something the Bible explicitly says we should do, tell God about it and say, Lord, change me. I mean, can we be honest? There's enough dadgum people in the world who call each other snowflake and yet get offended when someone disagrees with them. Don't be that guy. Pray to God and say, Lord, teach me to be empathetic, even toward the people who aren't so nice to me. Teach me to see life through their eyes and to show them the encouragement that they need. It takes presence. It takes urgency because the day is approaching. And number three, it takes strategic thinking. Now, that term is not in the Bible, but chapter 10, verse 24 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That word consider is interesting because it literally means to have the eyes of your spirit upon someone. So when you have the eye, when you consider how to, how to stir someone up to love and good deeds, you're, you're, you're thinking more about that person than you are about yourself. You're considering, you're, you're pondering, you're, you're strategizing. If I were that person, what kind of encouragement would I need? How can I do something? How can I say something that's not what they've heard before that will help them, that will lift them out of their doldrums, that will empower and inspire them and help them to carry on? You know, that's, that's really the job description of a ministry staff person. All of us on the ministry staff here, we're, we're so privileged. It's such a great church. We get to work here together. I love working alongside these men and women. They're great. And, and yes, we lead ministry programs. And yes, we each do things. Robert leads choir and, I, and Nathan leads band and I, lead, I, I preach. Yes, but ultimately, our job is to inspire. Our job is to stir up every one of you toward love and good deeds. How can we do that? In fact, today, please pray for us because today we're leaving for three days for our annual ministry retreat, our our staff retreat. We're we're just going to talk. What can we do? How can we lead this church to go further, to go better, to do more for Christ? Last year, that led to us doing the All-In Challenge, and so many of you have risen to that challenge, and you're in the midst of that, and I hope it's been fruitful for you. And this week, we're going to see which direction God leads us ahead. But guess what? That's everybody's job in this room, not just the ones who get paid for it. It's everybody's job. Consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. When's the last time you sat around and just thought, what can I do to encourage this person? What do they need to hear? How can I lift them up? When I was a sophomore at U of H, I met this girl at the Baptist Student Union, Long, dark, wavy hair, green eyes that sort of went blue, depending on what she was wearing. And you could say the eyes of my spirit were upon her, because they were. And she had a boyfriend, and I just didn't have a lot of game, So uh, I, I figured, well, at least I can sit next to her at the leadership team meetings, because we were on leadership team together. And I think we met every Tuesday night. So I would make sure that I got there early enough to sit next to her. And all day Tuesday, I'd be thinking of, okay, what can I say to her? What can I talk to her about tonight? Because I didn't want to be the guy who just shows up and goes, how's it going? I really wanted to have something to talk about. So I remember one day, one Tuesday, I got there and I had my line. I was like, okay, I am so busy. I am just crazy busy. I've got so many tests to study for and papers to write and, and books to read. And I just wish I, I, I've got too much to do and too little time. I wish God would just give me my own private little 24 hours where the world stops turning and I just get to go off and do my stuff and get caught up and then the world can start turning again. Everything would be great. And without batting an eye, she said, Well, God did that once. And I said, Oh, really? And she goes, Yeah. And she tells me the story from Joshua about how this one time Joshua and the army of God was fighting against the enemy. And they were winning, but the sun was starting to set and Joshua knew if if the sun set and it went night, if, if it got dark, the enemy would escape and they'd have to fight him again another day. And so he prayed and he said, Lord, give me more time. Make the sun stop setting so I can defeat your enemies for you. And God literally did it. The sun stopped setting. The world stopped spinning And they had 24 extra hours in which to defeat the enemies and deliver God's people. And she tells me this story, and I'm amazed because I've grown up in church, and I thought I was Bible man. I I grew up in church, going to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. My mom was the leader of the WMU. My grandpa was the Sunday school men's teacher, and then my dad was after him. And I thought I knew every story in the Bible, but the hot chick knew more Bible than I did. And so I was like, oh, wow, I really need to start reading the Bible for myself. Not just listening to sermons, not just reading a little devotional portion. And that's when, at 19 years old, for the first time in my life, I actually started reading the entire Bible. It took me three years. I didn't have a cool little reading plan like we have here, but I did it. I did it to impress her, yes, but I also did it because I wanted what she had, and yes, you probably figured this out, but she dumped that guy and we got married and everybody lived happily ever after. Well, well we did. I don't know about him. But, um, <laughs> but even if that hadn't happened, even if she would have married him and I was yoked to some toothless hag today, um, I would still owe her. Because she stirred me up to love and good deeds. Because she inspired me to do something that changed my life for good. How can you do that? It may, it may not be something you think about a long time ahead of time, but you're ready for that moment to speak the word someone needs to hear. In our retreat at Glen Eyrie a couple weeks ago, I told this story. We, we studied a book uh, called Fearfully and Wonderfully by Philip Yancey and Dr. Paul Brand. I highly recommend it. But there's a story in the book about an epidemic of smallpox that broke out in Bogota, Colombia in 1802. If you know anything about history, you know that smallpox was absolutely dreaded a couple of hundred years ago. If it hit your village, you knew everyone was getting sick and a lot of people were going to die because there was no cure. But in Europe, they had developed a vaccine. The, The technique of vaccination was still in its infancy, but it had proved to be effective. And the way it worked was you infected someone with a weakened form of that virus, and their antibodies, their, their white blood cells would fight it off, and then they would be imprinted with the ability to fight it off from then on. And so from then on, whenever that virus would be introduced into your body, your white blood cells would immediately attack it, knowing how to defeat it. The problem was they didn't have the technology at that point to get the vaccine from Europe to South America, and people were going to die. So what they did was rather genius. This doctor conscripted 22 little boys from an orphanage. He put them on a boat. He inoculated five of them, and then they set sail for South America and after 10 days, the little boys who were inoculated started to develop the, little, the familiar sores of smallpox. And they were oozing pus. I know this is gross, ladies, but it's for <laughs> life and death. And, and so the doctor uh, harvested some of that, and then he got two more boys, and he, he scratched their arms, and he rubbed that pus into those scratches so that they would become infected too. And they did this process over and over again, all the way across the Atlantic, until when they landed in South America, the last two boys were still keeping the virus alive. They just made it. They managed to get to Bogota, they inoculated that city and stopped the spread of that epidemic and they said while we're here let's keep it going and they went to other countries like Ecuador and Chile and Argentina and the doctor's assistant took some and took some of the people with him. and they went to Mexico and they inoculated that country and then they sailed the Pacific all the way to the Philippines and they inoculated the Philippines as well. And today, in Bogota, there's a monument to those 22 anonymous orphan boys between the ages of three and nine whose blood saved hundreds of thousands of people. And those boys had no choice. They they were just conscripted out of an orphanage. But you and I do. We do have a choice. We can choose to make our lives about caring for other people at least as much as we care about ourselves because that's the command of Christ. We can consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds. We can exhort one another every day while it's still called today. Will you pray and ask the Lord to make you that kind of person who consistently encourages? It could be that while I've been talking, you've been sitting there and the Holy Spirit's just been putting it into your head that there's somebody specific you need to talk to today. Or it could be that you need to ask Him to do that very thing. Give you eyes to see the people around you who need need encouragement and the words they need to hear. Will you pray that kind of prayer? Keep in mind, Jesus is the ultimate willing hero. And like those boys, He chose to come and to give His blood. Not just enough to inoculate us, but all of it. He shed His entire store of blood. Willingly, joyfully according to Hebrews. And His blood saved every human being who will ever believe in Him. Everyone who's willing. The story of our lives is that we serve a Savior who refused to let us quit, who refused to let us die. He stood up against the ultimate epidemic and by His blood we are saved.